Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by a new interlocutor for our Postmodern Conservative series. I will be joined by Steve Saylor, a man whom I have read for many years. He's a, a film critic and a social critic and a statistician, and therefore a man who notices much more about what goes on in society than most political pundits. It's one of the sad things about the state of America that the man is not weekly on TV or radio, but he is a columnist for multiple outlets. And uh, well, Steve, I should let you introduce yourself. It's your first time on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks much for uh, accepting to do this. I'm looking forward to a conversation about the big facts of American life, the two American ways of life that define people much more seriously than their ideologies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Welcome to the show. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm very happy to be here, Titus. Thanks for inviting me on. Please, first of all, tell us how you got into finding social facts. You have made all sorts of impressive discoveries, including during the COVID years. How did you get started on applying your thought to society, to the facts of American life? It's not what you trained for in college. It's not what you did in business, right? But somehow you were prepared for it. I mean, it probably goes back over 50 years now uh, to high school debate and so forth. I was always interested in statistical analyses of social things. Probably goes back to being a sports fan. My interest in baseball statistics as a little boy, etc. Then I got in, I went to MBA school and became a marketing researcher, which is sort of a uh, you know, a corporate but slightly academic-flavored form of business. And I did that for quite a while. And over time, I got better and better at writing. And so eventually, went full-time for writing in this century. So yeah, paying attention to to patterns, to noticing statistical regularities, it's just always been something of interest to me. And it seemed like when I decided to go to be a writer, the big thing that was being overlooked was, was somebody who was kind of relating what they could see with their own lying eyes about their daily life and tying it to kind of the big pictures of politics and social issues and so forth. My view is that there's not really some sort of hard and fast dividing chasm between anecdotes from your own life, uh, anecdata from what a few people tell you, and then actual data collected through the social science mechanism they all should tie together and generally speaking they do so it's it's been a a fertile row for me to plow ever since uh, on the other hand for for whatever reason it tends to make a lot of people really mad at me i'm not sure why i don't strike myself as being such a horrendous or objectionable person but uh, for some reason it has but i have a rather thick skin and i don't mind yeah, it's a very fortunate combination uh, to be affable and thick-skinned at the same time, because indeed you have uh, ended up being a lightning rod, but at the same time a, a hero to at least my generation of people on the right. We should let our audience know that many people have a Twitter following of one size or another, but almost no Twitter following announces the man they admire by putting out the bad signal, which is now the 
the, the <laughs> Steve Saylor signal, whenever some liberal celebrity in media says something absolutely idiotic with the moral conviction that these people effortlessly summon from their long years of training in performance, in hysterical histrionics especially. And then Steve comes to the rescue by, uh, as you said, putting together things that everybody notices but is not allowed to say in America, and the data that most of us are not really prepared to uh, use. My training is in political science, for example, but I can tell you that uh, both in undergrad and in grad school, I did not relish my statistics courses and the research methodology and all of these things. My heart is with political theory with Aristotle, and yet uh, it's uh, reading you that I feel closest to in terms of Aristotelian and political science, because you would say the same thing. Uh, if you observe things intelligently, then you have to start counting. You have to start figuring things out uh, in quantity, but you need to know what you're looking for. And that judgment is irreplaceable. There is no amount of higher education theorizing that can replace the perspective of a citizen who has enough intelligence and cares enough to look around. Yeah, my, my favorite character on Sesame Street is the Count from Transylvania who loves counting. So let me start running through your famous observations or observations that should be famous with the Iraq war since it's now on its 20th anniversary. You wrote, I think it was for the American conservative at the time, 20 years back, that there would be major problems with uh, installing democracy in a country that is socially, familiarly arranged around cousin marriage, such that a good majority of the marriages are first or second order cousins. How are you going to trust a judge in court, a cop or whatever, when plaintiff or defendant is probably related and so on and so forth? That now that is a common sense observation that yeah. has um, massive implications and nobody pays attention except, of course, you. Yeah, I, I mean, the Iraq war 20 years ago was a real dividing line on the right and a lot of the divisions have never healed from that. The idea of nation building, of turning Iraq, of all places, into a democracy never struck me as plausible. And then I picked up from uh, Stanley Kurtz, an anthropologist writing in, in National Review, an interesting fact was that about half of all the marriages in Iraq were between first were second cousins. And the logic of this, it, it seems real weird to us because we're so concerned ever since the eugenics era in the United States about inbreeding and the genetic downside of that. But it has a lot of benefits. So say you and your brother own a herd of goats and there's economies of scale in that and you want to keep it together and the bigger the herd, the better. But how are you going to split it up between the two of you? Well, maybe you have your son marry your brother's daughter, and then your grandson is also your grandnephew and vice versa for your brother. You and your brother now have the same heir. Oh, that solves all sorts of problems. So there's a huge impetus to keep things in the family in, in a big part of the world that is more or less related to, to where Islam is, but it probably predates Islam, and it's not in the Quran or anything like that. But countries that are organized like that tend to be very clannish. You're related to your relatives, not just through one pathway like in the West, but 
you know, your first cousin might also be your second cousin, and he might also be a third cousin, and it just keeps piling up, this thickness of family ties. And therefore, being a citizen, that really comes in less important than being a member of your of your family, your clan. And we see that all the time in the Middle of the East, and it keeps the countries from really getting their acts together. There's lots of corruption, lots of infighting and so forth. And, you know, just democratic citizenship takes a back seat. And nothing much that's happened in the 20 years since the U.S. decided it was going to go conquer Baghdad has uh, shot down my, my observations from early 2003. The Bush administration was not interested in them at the time. Indeed, uh, it seems like it's a defining feature of politics in our time that uh, intelligent observation of the realities that we're supposed to be dealing with is uh, largely absent, as in foreign affairs, so also in domestic affairs. Another one of your observations that made me make sure that beyond our occasional chat about a movie on Twitter, I read what you have to say has to do with American domestic politics. That is, Americans who want to get married and have kids for whatever reason, tend to form one way of life. And the other ones who don't necessarily care much about that, they're the city Americans. And of course, urban America dominates economically in certain ways and dominates various states. But probably there's a majority of Americans who would be in the other camp. Certainly, it's competitive politically. uh, It's a competitive country politically for that reason. The big difference in American electioneering is are the women married or not? The ones who are married vote Republican, and the ones who are not have increasingly come to vote Democrat to a point where it's hopeless. They vote Democrat by 50, 60 points. It's what are you going to do? It's a reality that one would have to face and uh, therefore to look for voters where they are left, i.e. the majority of people who are married and for the rest, the young men who are now unmarried and possibly in vast numbers hitherto unimagined in American history, unmarriageable. These would be major facts that anybody interested in politics and in society would have to know. And yet mostly people don't know or don't talk about that. Yeah, I started to really observe this when I got back the results of the 2004 presidential election, which in terms of red state, blue state, red county, blue county, tended to be almost exactly the same as 2000. And 2012 with Romney was very, very similar to the Bush elections. People hadn't been noticing this pattern because when Ross Perot ran in 1992 and 1996, he tended to disrupt it. But without Perot in the field, these patterns that had been emerging in the 1980s suddenly became real clear. All right, what are some of the patterns? The basic pattern I see is that the two parties are coalitions of what I would call core Americans on the part of Republicans versus fringe Americans, or as they might choose, marginalized Americans on the part of Democrats. Now, the core Republicans tend to be the more you resemble George Washington or Benjamin Franklin demographically, the more you're likely to vote Republican. So if you're 
a white male, if you're of Northwest European descent, if you're at least vaguely Christian, if you're married, if you're a man, if you're a homeowner, yeah, that all piles up and pretty soon you're voting 65 35 Republican or something like that. Similarly, if you're a married woman and you're white and you're Christian, yeah, you'll probably vote pretty much like your husband will and so forth and so on. And then the flip side of that is the fringe or the marginalized. Now, in a lot of ways, the term fringe might be a little better rather than marginalized because the democratic coalition includes a lot of groups that see themselves as sort of on the fringe, but are hard to describe as marginalized, you know, in terms of wealth and influence. Jews, the billionaires, academics, etc., and so forth. But then also other groups, certainly Blacks, immigrants, the poor, etc. And then kind of constantly on the Democrats are on the search for new groups, gays, and even just let's create groups like the transgender who have largely been concocted in, in practically real time over the last decade so that you can look like George Washington, but if you put on a dress like Martha Washington, now you're a leader of fringe Americans. So, okay, now there's geographic differences. I call them the dirt gap. Basically, red states and blue states, their metropolitan areas tend to be different. A blue state's big city is almost certainly going to be on deep water, either the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean or the Great Lakes. And you have to sort of think about the shape of it. Like when I lived in Chicago, Lake Michigan forms pretty much a straight north-south border. So suburban expansion from Chicago can only go in 180 degrees. And that means you have half as much potential suburban land within a specified commuting distance of Chicago. So within a one hour's commute, you've got half as much land in the suburbs as you do in, say, Dallas or Atlanta. And that means that suburbs are moderately expensive in Chicago and more people crowd into the lakefront area and live a very high density lifestyle there. Other areas that are like this, Los Angeles used to be more of an inland city. Downtown's about 20 miles inland, but it's pretty much filled up the entire basin and there's really nowhere else to expand. San Francisco is a tiny peninsula also surrounded by ocean, bay, and huge mountains. Manhattan started out basically it's narrow island with water on both sides and it built up rather than out. You can kind of go through this list and it works most of the time, not not every time. Washington DC should be an inland city, but because of the federal government, it's it's very blue. All right. So what you've got is it's cheaper to get a, a single family house with a backyard in a decent school district in an inland city, an inland metropolis, all else being equal. 
And that means that inland America tends to attract people who prioritize family life. And therefore, they're more open to the party that positions itself as what used to be called the party of family values. And meanwhile, the densely populated cities fill up with people who prioritize self-actualization over having room for the three kids and a big backyard for the dog, and so forth. So the cities fill up with more diverse people, more on the fringes, and this means that it makes sense for them to form a coalition of the fringes versus kind of the run-of-the-mill core Americans who are found outside of the expensive metro areas. That's the basic dividing line. It makes me not very sympathetic to demands that the United States break up geographically because it's, A, how do you draw the borders? Is the border going to run 27 miles outside of Chicago or something? I don't know. It's, it's a real complicated map. And then it's also not a permanent thing because, you know, living downtown kind of makes you move in one direction politically. Living in the exurbs makes you move in the other direction. Direction, and it doesn't sound stable at all. It sounds like a process will reproduce itself all over time. So basically, I mean, what we need is a society where a culture where it's a lot more open to criticism of the, you know, the dominant party that has the whip hand whose strategy drives so much, not just of our politics, but of our culture, that they have the incentives to exalt diversity above all other values despite all the evident problems that it causes and to demonize those who point out, yeah, you know, your diversity, your drive for diversity is divisive and is causing the country all sorts of problems. Yeah. All told, the urban Americans who make up most of the core and the elite of the liberal coalition are unhappy people living in an unhappy world. The happier Americans tend to be outside of those largely ungovernable metropolises. Well, I mean, I lived on the Chicago lakefront for quite a while and was quite happy. I've generally been happy wherever I lived and uh, see the advantages of all the different kind of lifestyles inherent in America. But that said, yeah, the urban lifestyle is oriented toward people, you know, grasping for the brass ring, trying to be the new elite. And it's stressful and a lot of them fail and they tend to adopt, you know, sort of bitter attitudes they're having a hard time affording to form a family in the big cities. Some of them bail out. Others live a life of loneliness and turn bitterly toward politics to, to have somebody to blame for their own higher risk choices. In general, we should probably be trying to help people understand the trade-offs and think honestly about if you're a young woman working in a marketing job in Manhattan, are you going to marry the investment banker and, and move to Greenwich, or is it not going to work for you? And you should be looking elsewhere. This is perfectly sensible <laughs> advice, but in general, it's Giving young women good advice is considered highly offensive these days. Yes, that's a major problem. And it comes at this strange moment. 
since the 90s, the big cities have gradually become, let's say, playgrounds for the 20-somethings. And the age at which women marry has gone up, up, ups. Up to now, it's maybe a majority of people at 30, 32 are still unmarried. So that extends that. And of course, the college population is continuously being expanded. And that further uh, encourages people to, uh, to live a, a really a life of fantasies that will somehow come crashing down in the 30s. And, you know, life shakes out somehow. People make the best of it, but only after at least a decade of living in a fantasy. Now that I think about it, what you're saying, a lot of it has to do was sort of made possible by one of the great conservative governance accomplishments of the turn of the century was that you saw, especially in New York City, where Mayor Giuliani, Mayor Bloomberg, and Police Commissioner Braddon, over a very long period of time, drove down the, the crime rate to a remarkable extent. And I can recall visiting uh, Manhattan in 2011, for the first time in a few years, and driving around on a Thursday night and saying, wow, you know, Lower Manhattan looks like the world's biggest set for a romantic comedy film. I mean, this just, you know, is a wonderland all of a sudden with beautiful young women everywhere. So just sort of by making urban life easier and safer, you know, sort of encourage this. But those are the trade-offs as well. Since George Floyd's death in May 2020, the establishment has been working hard on making big city life scarier for young women. So who knows what effect that will have. Yeah, indeed. Family formation doesn't just involve people finding somebody to get married to, although that's increasingly hard, but it also means that they live somewhere. The school district is maybe the dominant concern, but in some small but increasingly larger part of the country, safety is a major concern. And city life also has this other side of ugliness, kind of uh, generalized lawlessness. It's not clear how far does it spread. Is it some property crime? Is it just some carjackings? which have increased in a number of major cities. But over the last three years, this aspect of the cost of having a family or the difficulty of having a family, it's also getting to be a worse and worse deal to be an adult with a bit of a head on your shoulders in a major American city. So uh, yeah. So what's gone wrong lately? Well, in New York City, you had this important change politically, huge amount of hypocrisy, but it did wonders for the city, which was that for five mayoral elections in a row, the Democratic nominee was defeated, whether by the Republican Giuliani or by Bloomberg, who over his three elections went back and forth between, well, am I a Republican this time or an independent, but I'm not the Democratic nominee. And it had some good effects on urban life, not just crime going down, but the public schools in New York tended to be run in a fashion that was like, oh, you know, you're a married white couple and you want to send your kids to a public school instead of paying $57,000 to send your two kids to kindergarten and private kindergarten. Oh, yeah, actually, we've got some schools that you might find reasonable. So starting with the rise of Black Lives Matter in 2014, there's been a lot of pushback against cities 
actually looking out for married white families. It didn't happen for in 2014 in New York City. It came very close to when there was a, a police killing and then uh, the mayor de Blasio wanted to, you know, use this to really purge the NYPD, but he'd had to nominate Giuliani's police commissioner, Bill Braddon, to keep things together politically, and Braddon refused to go along with it, and de Blasio backed down. But then comes May 25th, 2020, and suddenly the establishment goes nuts across the country. And you have a huge cutback in policing. Basically, the establishment sends out the message to policemen that they're policing blacks too much and they should work less. They should retreat to the donut shop. They shouldn't be stopping bad drivers and checking them for illegal handguns. And, you know, if you tell the cops that they're the bad guys, and they can become less bad by doing less work, they do less work. So what happened across the country? Well, besides the mostly peaceful protests, the hundreds of them, you saw very quickly a huge surge, a new plateau in homicides, especially homicide deaths among Blacks, and then following in 2021 among Hispanics, as they started to get the message that the cops were pulling back, you saw a huge increase immediately among Blacks in June 2020 of traffic fatality deaths that they recognized that the police weren't pulling over bad drivers very much. And so why not speed why not generally drive like you're a Grand Theft Auto character? Hispanics, too, went way up. The white death rate went up a lot, just only half as much as the black and Hispanic death rate. You see the return of, you know, people are, are being told to wear masks, which when I was a little kid, I watched a lot of cowboy TV shows. And the term masked men was a synonym for bandits. Oh, well, then you get this huge increase of carjackings carried out by masked men, or typically masked teens, wearing masks purportedly for COVID, but actually to defeat the uh, huge improvements in facial recognition software that have occurred over the last 10 years and should have made armed robbery really a thing of the past. You have government agencies you know, public schools and so forth, suddenly going, hey, wait a minute, that tracking system where we have honors classes, that's mostly Asian and white kids. That's racist. We got to get rid of that. And what we've seen is we've seen a surge in home prices in suburbs, exurbs, small towns, people saying, you know, I can work from home from way the heck out of the city. Do we need to live in the city anymore? And we're seeing a sudden bad period for American cities after they'd gone through a, a long revival after the, the collapse of American cities during the uh, growth of the suburbs and the civil rights era and the gr huge growth in crime in the 60s and 70s, which were devastating to American cities. The first time liberals got control of all of these levers of government and pretty much destroyed urban life in America. Well, we're doing the same thing again. So the Democrats, their coalition of the fringes, 
the coalition of diversity is the country becomes more diverse through immigration and other mechanisms. It sounds like a total winning strategy, but the Democrats' policies that they derive from their theories of diversity are so destructive, especially to their own voters who aren't insulated from them out in the country, that, you know, are they going to succeed? It's hard to say. A big part of it is that the Democrats can't or haven't shown the ability to organize a big coalition in which everybody gets to play a role the way like FDR could manage a coalition in the New Deal that was all over the place. You had your, your Southern senators who wanted Jim Crow. You had your popular front who was basically taking their orders from Moscow. You had your unions. I mean, FDR could kind of keep them all balanced off each other. The problem with the current Democratic coalition of the fringes is it's so ideological in terms of status. And when I say ideological, we're not talking about old time ideologies like Marxism or whatever. We're talking about basically status. Who's most morally deserving, who deserves prestige the most, who deserves to be centered in our culture. And so you've got this constant clawing to be at the top of the totem pole, the pyramid of diversity Pokemon points. And, you know, occasionally women claw their way near the top with the Me Too era and so forth. But pretty much in the 2020s, the Democratic ziggurat of prestige and importance has been dominated by Blacks, especially Black women in the cultural sphere, Black men in terms of the policy sphere of, you know, they commit a lot of crimes and we so we have to punish them a lot less because it's racist to expect them to obey the law. And then coming out of nowhere over the last 10 years, the, the transgenders, and that pushes everybody else down. You know, half, half the lesbians realize that they've been discarded in favor of the transgenders, of men with dresses being allowed to invade lesbian spaces and hit on the lesbians constantly. And, you know, the other half the lesbians are so deluded by ideology that they think that's horrible for the J.K. Rowling type lesbians and their allies like Rowling to notice these things. You know, the Hispanics figured out in 2020 that even though they're real crucial to the Democrats' coalition of the, of the fringes in the future by their huge numbers and their constant growth, that prestige-wise, they're way down compared to Blacks. And they can be expected that, you know, Hispanic cops and border patrolmen and so forth are going to be thrown to the wolves repeatedly over the years in the Black Lives Matter era. So it's hard to manage the Democrats' coalition of the fringes. You know, Joe Biden may well be doing about as good a job as anybody can, mostly by like, okay, here's some more money. We're going to spend 
money. Oh, the blue collar guys. Yeah, we're going to spend a whole bunch on building stuff. Now, can it survive period of austerity? Yeah, we'll see. But it's it's not as easy for Democrats as it probably seemed. I mean, about a dozen years ago, I recommended the Republicans that they start to relabel Democrats not as the party of the multicultural cool party of the future, the emerging democratic majority, the party of diversity, but as the party of blacks, that blacks deserve, due to their history in the United States, the leading role in the Democratic Party. Well, Republicans paid no attention to it, but Democrats have come to be convinced of that truth. And it's had some negative effects on Democrats. Now, it's hard to say, but in some states, for example, in Missouri, where Obama almost beat Romney or possibly McCain, I've, I've forgotten, it was a very close election. Missouri has been home to all sorts of bad behavior by Blacks ever since. Uh, Ferguson, the uh, University of Missouri football team incident in 2015, and a huge upsurge in Black shootings of mostly other Blacks, but also whites, is the crime rate skyrocketed during both the Ferguson effect and the Floyd effect. And that's driven whites in Missouri further to the right. Same thing seems to be happening in Iowa. But has it happened in Minnesota yet? You know, Minnesota in 2020, an amazing performance of Black bad behavior to burn down a big chunk of the shopping district of Minneapolis, a huge surge in Black shootings, Black bad driving, etc. Did it have any impact on the 2020 election in Minnesota? Not that I could tell. Probably white Minnesotans moved a little to, more to the left. So it's hard to say. But in summary, if you want to understand politics in the 21st century, partisan politics, think of the Democrats as largely having the whip hand as being on, if not the right side of history, the winnings side. And then it becomes a question can they manage this? Can they be realistic enough? Or do they believe their own propaganda so much that they can't keep their constituent elements from acting up, that they can't keep the transgenders, you know, say, from just making everybody hate them? The way the, the Democrats have managed to alienate, like, parents with daughters who are athletes. That's a constituency typically suburban, typically moderate, but maybe open to feminist ideas that's a key swing element for the Democrats. You're probably going to have a harder time getting suburban parents with two sons who are football players to vote Democratic, but two daughters who are high school athletes, well, that's not bad. You know, they like the idea of Title IX, of scholarships for Democrats, etc. But then you have people like, you know, guys like Leah Thomas deciding 
he's a loser among male swimmers, but he's the champ if he declares himself a female swimmer. And are the Democrats going to say anything against that? Like, yeah, let's not do that. No, no, not, let's, let's, let's figure out something here. No, no. Damn it. Leah Thomas, Will Thomas decided he was Leah Thomas. That means he gets to beat all the girls. That's it. So the Democrats have a problem with that, with their coalition of the fringes is the nuttiest, the most obnoxious tend to come to, to the, the fore and tend to ruin things for them. Now, the Democrats' big advantage is they have the whole prestige press on their side. So let's go talk about January 6th instead of new things that are happening now. And, you know, you can get these bubbles of where the world is constantly read back to you by the news media in a way that you want to hear. I mean, for example, I'm an extremely close reader of the New York Times. And what I figured out is that if I start reading an article in the New York Times, I need to read it all the way to the end because the second half of the article is where the really interesting facts get buried, the ones that don't fit the narrative that's being promoted in the headline and the opening paragraphs. You know, the New York Times is in recent years, since about 2012, 14, a financially successful organization. What they figured out was that they can develop a huge base of subscribers. They just can't undermine the worldview of their subscribers. The people who are paying $17 a month to read the New York Times want to skim over it and go, ah, yes, I was right about everything. And look at those horrible Republicans. All right. They don't want to read articles that worry them about what they believe. On the other hand, New York Times reporters aren't completely converged. The older ones grew up in an era where you're supposed to actually figure out stuff and report it. So the compromise that the marketing department, the editors and the reporters seem to have worked out is the upside down story, where instead of putting the important facts up front, you put them down in the 14th paragraph where most of the subscribers have stopped reading and only the hardheads will keep looking for something that goes, oh, so that's what's going on. All right. I talked for a while. Yeah. yeah so I think this is a very good vision, a, a lay of the land that it's for better and for worse. America has become incredibly progressive. Progressives are really in charge of so much of the culture, and it doesn't look like it's stopping, but it does come with uh, these kinds of weaknesses. Importing immigrants or being more progressive in the sense of not punishing crime anymore has massive drawbacks. And these, they don't seem yet electorally important, but they might be. They were before, as you pointed out, uh, about 90s New York, or of course the 70s, so on and so forth. And on the other hand, at the elite level, it's gotten a lot crazier than anybody had warned things might get or worried. And that creates these kinds of showcases of fanaticism, like the transgender issue, where the more people realize that it's a lie, the more they say it, because an ordinary person can tell the truth. A super ordinary person or an elite person tells a lie with conviction. Yeah, with Joe Biden, you can always see the tendency of him to blurt out something 
that would get him canceled, but then add, but that's a good thing right afterwards to save himself. He's done it a million times. You got to say that's pretty impressive, Joe, because he's in the range of what I call elderly Tourette syndrome, where you just sort of want to blurt out the truth, but he keeps catching himself. So he's managed to not like cause a crisis over whatever his true beliefs about the transgender mania are to stick with the program here that this is the greatest thing that ever happened to children. Yeah, in a way, it's remarkable that a fellow so old and you know on, on his way to dementia is, at least in public, still on messages, they like to say. <laughs> if that's not a masterpiece of management, not to say medication, I don't know what is. It's uh, America's first zombie presidency is fairly well managed. But One yeah, and, to... I mean, you got to give Joe credit. You know, he says all of these crazy things. I mean, my favorite was during the Kenosha riots in 2020, he went to Kenosha and he announced that Thomas Edison hadn't invented the light bulb, a black guy did, and we need to teach this in schools. You know, and I think he got that from the poor guy who got shot in Kenosha's father, who's who's a big hotep black nationalist type. So Joe says all these wonderfully crazy things, but I mean, half the time he's about to say something that makes sense, and then you can see him stop. He's always like, "Hey, did you ever notice how like you watch the TV commercials and all the suburban couples? There's a black spouse and a white spouse. Well, that's great." Or you ever noticed how Jews control the media and that's why we got gay marriage? Well, that's great. I find Joe pretty entertaining. And, you know, the man mm. has managed to hold it together and, you know, not get himself canceled by the social justice warriors in his own administration. But yeah, this is a major question that I haven't seen explained is why all of these huge institutions in the prestige press and the culture world and so forth have been taken over by unhappy 20-something staffers who get paid so little that their New York City rent is largely paid by their fathers. Uh, and I don't know exactly. I mean, one theory I have is that it goes back to Me Too. And it turns out that, yeah, basically the married executive vice president, yeah, he really did put his hand on the 23-year-old intern's thigh during the 2017 Christmas party. And therefore, the now 29-year-old can blackmail him into supporting whatever crazy thing she truly believes in as her life suddenly gets less and less promising than it seemed when she was 23, when she realized, well, he's not going to divorce his wife and kids and so forth. She and others like her can impose whatever crazy view to transgenderism or whatever they're into right now that they've taken up in their general increasing unhappiness. That's one theory. I've asked people who work in big institutions and they haven't been that enthusiastic about that idea. Another argument is simply that the Overton window has narrowed down so much that at this point, after you've thrown from the Overton window of discussion, uh, Charles Murray or Amy Wax or Steve Saylor, now the, the old time centrist moderates are now the extreme right and they're being shoved out and 
basically all that's left is Ibram X. Kendi's views on race, Colonel Jennifer Pritzker's views on transgenderism, et cetera, et cetera. Since we don't have a realistic right within the Overton window of what's respectable discourse to go, yeah, the reason that black men tend to get shot by the police is because black men tend to carry much higher rate than anybody else. They tend to carry illegal handguns and shoot other people more. Yeah, the black homicide rate is roughly an order of magnitude higher than the white rate and maybe 20 or 30 times higher than the Asian rate. Even the Hispanic rate has come way down over the last 30 years, at least until the, the current racial reckoning. And you know, the Hispanics and Blacks are pretty comparable in their socioeconomic status, their wealth, their income, their education. And if Hispanics can improve their behavior, maybe we should be asking Blacks to as well, instead of making excuses for them. But you're not supposed to say that. It doesn't get said. So the only explanation that's allowed within the Overton window in the 2020s is basically demonization of whites, systemic racism, white privilege, white supremacy, the horrors of whiteness, the need to abolish whiteness, the rhetoric, the worldview, the mental building blocks of polite discourse, you know, has gotten pretty crazed, pretty vicious in this decade, in large part because everybody sort of knows, yeah, the truth is pretty much what, you know, Charles Murray says it is. So we're not going to allow anybody to say that because because why? And that, that's a big question. It's, it's a huge question why, as the, the data piles up, year after year, the conventional wisdom becomes more science denialist, more anti-social scientist, more crazed. One view is simply, yeah, it would be embarrassing after 29 years of denouncing the bell curve as pseudoscience to go, oh, yeah, they probably got most of it right. Yeah, that's, that is kind of the way the world works. Things are not changing, haven't changed since 1994 very much. Yeah, there's probably cognitive differences between the races, just as, you know, there seem to be physical differences that we see on the football field, on the basketball field, on the Olympic track, etc. Can we live with that? Yeah, well, we have been living with it. That's the way the world works. All right. So part of it is just stubborn refusal to admit, oh, yeah, we were the bad guys on this big debate and the Murray's. And the sailors have been the good guys who have been out there telling the truth for a long time. All right. Another possibility, the one that really scares me, is that your typical liberal progressive white thinks that if the science really is true that, yeah, race does more or less exist. There's racial differences in behavior. That some of it's genetic, but not all of it's genetic, but some of it is. That means Hitler was right. And the only thing we can do is exterminate these intermission. And I'm like, oh my God, that's crazy. That's just the vilest, craziest thing. 
But I think deep down, a lot of them really think that. And therefore, they believe we have to live in a fantasy world because otherwise there's nothing else we could do except genocide. And it's so nuts. And I don't know where it comes from. I mean, I think a lot of it comes from constantly expanding the definition of Nazism to include uh, eugenics. I mean, basically, most of your progressive Teddy Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, Woodrow Wilson type liberals in 1910 were temporarily into a scientific fad uh, promoted by Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, of like, you know, if we worked on this for a long time, we could figure out enough science that we could actually improve the genetics of the human race. And the great thing about Galton was he pointed out repeatedly, like, but to do that, we're going to have to, like, invent modern statistics, and we're going to have to come to understand genetics and how it's tied to evolution. And he he laid out this endless scientific program, progress, that has largely been followed out so that in the 21st century, much of the human sciences, the statistics, the genetics, and so forth, go back to the fields that Galton said we really need to get better at if we're ever going to do anything about this. All right. Now, on the other hand, a bunch of places pushed the envelope from science to policy too much and came up with like involuntary sterilization of retarded criminals and things like that. Interestingly, one country that didn't do it was Britain. Churchill's policy recommendation when he was home secretary to we should have involuntary sterilization was defeated in, in parliament by Galton's kinsman, one of the Wedgwoods, who said, like, look, in my family, we've been arguing about this for a long time. And here's all the things that are wrong with it and why we shouldn't do this kind of thing. So the view I take away from that is the more you think through these things scientifically, the more likely you're going to come to a humane, prudent decision like the British did before World War I. But ever since then, there's been a huge campaign over the last few decades that keeps accelerating to cancel most of the great white male scientists of the first half of the 20th century Because most of them, at some point, wrote three paragraphs or 300 words advocating eugenics. And since we've now decided that eugenics automatically leads to Auschwitz, therefore, any kind of scientific thinking about these kind of questions leads to genocide. This kind of logic, then, is very useful for going backwards to canceling, getting rid of Uh, white male professors who've been honored in the past. All right. So for example, the local junior high school in my neighborhood used to be named Milliken High School because Milliken was the president of nearby Caltech in Pasadena and a Nobel Prize winner in physics. But in his spare time, he was also a promoter of eugenics. And so therefore, that's been canceled and the school has been renamed Louis Armstrong Junior High School. Now, that's not the worst name. Everybody loves Louis Armstrong. There's a lot worse people they could have named it after, but Louis Armstrong didn't actually have anything to do with this neighborhood, whereas Professor Milliken was, you know, a giant in uh, Southern California for the first half of the 20th century. That's happening constantly around the world as part of this plan to basically rewrite the history books 
so that the dominance among the great contributors to human welfare of white males is discarded. If you read the Honest History books, you ask yourself, boy, this is basically Europeans pretty much came up with all the good ideas of the last 600 or so years. And you can see the why that would make non-Europeans resentful. I, I quote the line from Eliot, uh, after such knowledge, what forgiveness? That activist intellectuals from ar around the world or the more extreme feminists or whatever are going to say, yeah, you know, about 97% of the great contributors to human welfare of the last 600 years have been white men. And I just can't forgive that. It just drives me crazy. So we have to tear down their statues, take away their, their honors and so forth. Yeah, I think um, this gets at a very serious issue, the issue of honor, really, that at some level people have to ask whether there's such a thing as human greatness, whether there is excellence, whether there is outstanding achievement of the kind that Americans still applaud in athletics, but do not any longer applaud in intellectual pursuits. In certain ways, academia has become like the media, or democratized in a strange way. I say it's very strange because money matters a lot more. As you were saying earlier, journalists are much more often the kids of uh, the rich than they are working class people who worked the beat and came up with a reputation and became very important in at least their local town at the newspaper. But for all the disappearance of the working class from colleges and from the media, the weirdly upper middle class domination there is of a distinctly democratic character in the sense that it's incredibly loud, not particularly educated, and absolutely hateful of the idea of human greatness. And indeed, I mean, now they're at the level of wiping out the history, not just hating whoever's around that makes an outstanding or a rare point. Yeah, I, I've been kind of tracking how long it'll take until we see the cancellation of the big three of English-speaking culture, of Darwin, Newton, and Shakespeare. It's getting closer. That's too extreme at this point that, you know, canceling Shakespeare would set off a reaction of like, holy cow, what's going on here? But it's getting closer all the time. I mean, so far, for example, with Darwin, there's been a, this effort for the last 30 years, it's been pretty successful to make Darwin a secular saint to hold back the fundamentalists and so forth and to turn his cousin Galton, whom he got along with really well and was very impressed by, into a secular demon. But eventually they're going to get to Darwin. And you know, Newton, too, somehow. It's just after such knowledge, what forgiveness? They got to go. Now, it probably won't happen right away, but there's a constant urge to tear down the statues, the reputations of the great white whales of the past. You can see like the, the racial reckoning, the media like to call it back in 2020, has kind of slowed down on the policy level. I mean, Biden put the word out before the 2022 election, like, let's go quiet here on the whole depolicing stuff. Let's not talk about crime and so forth. 
the Republicans kind of have a winning issue with that. But if you change from the front pages of the newspaper where they talk about politics to the back pages where they talk about culture, the war on whiteness is going full speed ahead. All sorts of stupid artworks that got commissioned in the craziness of 2020 are now being unveiled. Incredibly ugly sculptures, bad operas, tearing that renamings of academic buildings tearing down of statues it's just it's full speed ahead the back section of the magazines just reports a constant victory for the the abolish whiteness movement and they have the money and the momentum and there's not much going to stop them so where does it lead i don't know but it's probably leading toward if you are a young white male do you go for greatness or do you play video games all day? What does your culture want you to do? And maybe keeping your head down on the couch with your video game controller is the least offensive thing you can do. Yeah, it's certainly the case that so far, Republican politicians and more broadly, the Republican culture, let's call it magazines, and beyond that, what is the really talk radio? There are a few things, but there's not a lot. Country music is not it anymore, for example. But they have altogether been absolutely incompetent about this issue. Those are your voters. Republicans are too stupid to find their own voters, but Democrats have made them a large electorate of voters. White males, unmarried nowadays, given the fact that the young don't marry. Go see what you can do to make those people's lives livable so that they can have some self-respect. Yeah. And so, they don't do it. Yeah, my big finding in 2004 was that, okay, if Republicans were going to be the family values party, then it would behoove them to make it easy, make it affordable for people to form families. There's been some interest in that. That's not as radical an idea as it was 19 years ago. But, you know, there hasn't been that much effort toward it. Perhaps the technology will help us out. Work from home might be a good thing as opposed to, you know, the tech industry in the 21st century. You know, the tech industry in the 21st century decided that, okay, here's what we're going to sell. We're going to sell the internet. We're going to make a fortune off the internet, which would allow you to work from anywhere in the world, unless you want to work on providing new internet services, in which case, you got to squeeze into Silicon Valley. And in fact, as the years went by, not just Silicon Valley in general, you're supposed to squeeze into San Francisco. That was extremely destructive of your sending your brightest young men into San Francisco, the worst place in the world for a young man to find a wife and afford to start a family, a place where you naturally pick up the ambient political craziness. All right. So, you know, maybe COVID's going to do us some good. It actually turns out eh, people can pretty well work from home, just like the proponents of the information superhighway were proclaiming would be happening real soon now in 1993. So work from home, you know, makes living a little easier. You're not killing yourself on the commute. You're not killing yourself to rent a one bedroom apartment in San Francisco. So, you know, maybe there is some hope, but we'll see. It's not like Republicans have think tanks that, well, Republicans have think tanks, but do they focus in on these issues of how do you nurture 
more people who by nature are likely to vote for you, eh, nah, who cares about that? Yeah, and of course, uh, party elites are just as blind. And I think working from home helps families. It certainly also encourages homeschooling. That's uh, is another way in which uh, things have shifted. The madness of the lockdowns has pushed so many people towards homeschooling or schools that would stay open or states that would keep the schools open. Some of that's not coming back. Some of those uh, changes are going to stick. And indeed, they might have larger effects as people realize that homeschooling is now a major, even national idea in America. It's viable, it's practiced. More and more people know somebody, maybe a neighbor homeschools. So yeah, I mean, who knows with artificial intelligence, maybe having your artificial tutor, it's hard to make education really work. The thing that actually moves the needle a lot is one-on-one tutoring, which is very expensive. With artificial intelligence, is it possible to get good tutoring to imitate somebody who's quite good at it at reasonable expense for for homeschooling? Perhaps. I mean, they've made some amazing progress. I don't know, though. Education technology does not generally progress very impressively. It just takes a long time. But that's another possibility. But it's also a possibility. I mean, Keep in mind, like the big breakthrough in artificial intelligence over the last six months was A, that the chat GPT, you know, became fluent at BSing you in kind of what looks to me like a bright high school student's A minus paper if he checked Wikipedia briefly. You know, it's basically what Ferris Bueller would come up with at the very last moment to write his term paper. And it would be pretty good. He's a Ferris Bueller's a bright guy. All right. The other thing Chat GPT came up with was they put safety rails around it. So the problem with artificial intelligence over the last 10 years was that whatever they told it to go, okay, go find some patterns for us, go notice something new. It kept coming back with, you know, Steve Saylor type discoveries. I mean, for example, they did an artificial intelligence system for radiologists that looked at x-rays and other scans. And one of the things that this learning model discovered was, oh, if, if you just look at these scans, you can figure out what race the person is. And the radiologist had never noticed that before. And the large learning model, it couldn't tell you because it was a black box, but it was like, oh, yeah, this is an Asian. And it was, it was highly accurate. All right. You keep noticing stuff like, oh, yeah, race is real. Race biologically exists. It exists at all levels throughout hum- the human body. All right. Chat GPT got around that. And it's like, no, we're not going to notice anything new. We're just going to spout back what people have already said, but in a coherent fashion. And we're going to put all sorts of safety rails around it so you can't get it to say something politically incorrect. Now, people have kind of gotten around that, but they accomplished it enough that it became completely acceptable to write long articles in the mainstream media about this amazing breakthrough without ever finding any quotes that would get it canceled. So that would, OpenAI did a great job on that, it's making their nonprofit 
not-for-profit, a huge profit. But we'll see where all this goes. I mean, there are still smart people working hard on stuff out there. So, you know, we're not doomed, but the more facts you can understand, the more you can understand a picture of how the world works that's not distorted by your, your ideology, by your racist hate that's so much of the current thinking about systemic racism is just driven by hate of white people and a, a desire to dispossess white people of their equity, their, their home equity. A whole lot of white people these days have inherited the house in a nice neighborhood from their parents. And that's a lot of what the current demands for equity are about. They're not kidding. It's home equity. You know, it turns out that, yeah, Black people's houses don't appreciate as fast in Black neighborhoods because Blacks don't tend to be as good neighbors as whites and Asians and others. And, you know, in San Francisco, put together a commission of 15 Blacks who decided that they wanted $5 million each and $97,000 per year for the next 250 years. All right, so that comes out as just the $5 million each comes out as, I think, something like $240,000 in home equity from every family with the misfortune of living in San Francisco. Now, that's not going to happen, but that's the Overton window. What's not in the Overton window of polite discussion is like me saying, you know, yeah, African-Americans are the poorest Americans, but they are the richest Africans. And until the Overton window can include both, give us $5 million for the horrors of living in San Francisco, or yeah, you are the poorest Americans, but you are the richest Africans. The discussion is constantly going to move toward, yeah, we should pay Black people in San Francisco $100,000 a year for the next quarter of a millennium, because I haven't heard any other proposals on the table, have I? Yeah, it does seem like as, as ways of life separate, it'll be up to conservatives, Republicans, whoever else is involved in this to try to figure out how to think about politics, ignoring anything that comes from people who shout about white supremacy. I mean, it's possible to push back against the woke just because they're so extremist, so self-evidently self-interested by money, by getting money without working for it. I mean, how much have I read op-eds over the last three years about how Black women need to nap more due to the burden of slavery, that they've inherited this exhaustion from their great-great-grandmother picking cotton that they need to reward themselves with napping. This is a common theme that, that runs through articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post in this decade. There's activists out promoting napping as the inherited right of Black women, all right? Now, there's a disconnect between the front of the newspaper and the back of the newspaper, the front is largely going to tell you what the Biden administration wants you to hear about what are the real issues of the time. And lately, especially, Biden is pushing a bunch of pretty reasonable kitchen table economic stuff. Like, you know, when your kids go to a rock concert, Ticketmaster shouldn't be able to rip them off for all these huge fees. That's a pretty reasonable thing to say. 
And the back of the newspaper is the Ministry of Nap has announced that Black women need to nap more. There's no connection between the you know, the front of the paper, like, what does that mean for people who work with Black women? Who's going to pay for all this napping, etc.? And the back of the newspaper, where the George Floyd cultural revolution rolls on. Now, at some point, the right has been building media institutions that read the back of the New York Times and the Washington Post, and then go, wow, look at all these crazies. And occasionally, the front of the New York Times and the Washington Post then will cover that. They won't cover the craziness. They'll cover the nastiness of conservative media pounces. And, you know, to remind their subscribers that, yes, we're the nice people. We're not the nasty people who pounce. But the Democrats should have the winning hand due to diversity growing caused by immigration and caused by the general fracturing effects of the internet to allow each tiny group to find itself out there and announce, we're not just fetishists, we're an identity, we're the transgender identity, and we deserve identity politics rights. And there's probably plenty more where that came from. Who's next? Everybody goes, oh, it's the pedophiles. No, that's not the, where the trajectory is going. The trajectory is basically sort of anti-sex these days. It's toward how dare that 40-year-old man date that 26-year-old woman? Why isn't he dating the 40-year-old women like me when we're at home with our cats? No, I think maybe polygamy would be big. It's going to be when the, uh, the African refugees start pouring in, and then it's kind of like, you know, Mr. Ngawa and the four Mrs. Ngawas. Why are three of them being left out? Why is we have this Sophie's Choice where Mr. Ngawa can only pick one Mrs. Ngawa to bring on asylum with him? You know, so once once it's it's polygamy is no longer a bunch of crazy Mormon fundamentalists that it's African refugees, and then the the momentum's going to build up, and the and the Silicon Valley polyamorists are going to pile on, and that it's going to be a big thing, I think. But it's only just now starting. It's to, likely to that think. that will be a big push ideologically yeah. yeah it seems like transgenderism in 2010 I, I first noticed oh my god transgender is going to be the next big thing in 2013 from reading new york times articles i finally got to this one that explained how it was this horrible violation of human rights that this x-man named who decided his name is fallon fox was a mixed martial artist he wasn't being allowed to beat up real women for money, and that this is the new thing. And I thought, that's nuts. Why is the New York Times devoting 2,000 words to complaining about this guy who claims to be a transsexual now who wants to injure real women in, in the octagon? That's the sickest thing I've ever heard. But that turned out to be the next big thing. Just just as, you know, gay marriage was rounding into the home stretch, you know, that's where the momentum was headed. I think that was kind of a, 
an eye-opening event for a few people. So the question is whether the Democrats can hold themselves back and say, no, I mean, occasionally Biden probably asks himself, you know, would FDR have gone for this? Would, Would JFK? But other times it's just like, okay, that's what the young people want these days. All right, I'm for it. You know, gender affirming care for children. Great. Past victories and the fervor of the young activists carry a lot of weight. So what's happening is it's not like the activists, the young activists are making themselves happier by their successes. It just makes them go, oh, my God, the oppression, the evil goes so much deeper. We have to go to this new, even crazier sounding policy to demand You know, that's not what makes people, especially young women, happy. What makes young women happy is a husband and a house and children. And everybody knows that, but you're not supposed to say that. And so we let unhappy young women, driven by their emotions, driven by their hormones, have way too much control over the culture and over even politics. And over HR and legal. Yeah. And over civil rights law, etc., over the courts, we take them way too seriously. And instead, we should be working on policies that would make them less unhappy. And I think that's not the work. major issue. There's not in America now a party for people who would like to live an ordinarily happy life. There are not yep. policy recommendations. There are politicians willing to say these things out loud. And that seems to be the big issue of this decade, balanced by, of course, the old unhappiness that must come with a bad economy and inflation and all of the attendant catastrophes, whatever they might turn out to be. But perhaps seeing how this unhappiness is organized and promoted for political purposes and simply for turning unhappiness, especially of young women, into politics because they can't have real lives. Hopefully this is is enlightening to our audience and hopefully this will be a bigger part of conservative conversation. Steve, uh, we've had a wonderfully elaborate conversation. Thanks very much for joining me on the podcast and for laying out subject by subject all of these things so that what's going on in America and how to look at things to figure out what might be coming down the pipe next could be done by everybody who might be interested in communications online. That's that's an opportunity for people on the right to think seriously about how can you reach other people? How can you share with them your insights and see where there is some spark, some common sentiment that makes people want to fight back, makes people want to stand together, makes people want to organize, because without that, uh, it's hard to find out how you organize a culture for the party for the happy people, the party for the people who want families and the ordinary life. So thanks very much for helping out with this. And let's do another podcast. Maybe, yes, let's. maybe, maybe since we've talked about how the unhappiness is organized, we might do another one about the weaknesses of this coalition, or maybe even ideas that might catch on with people who would want ordinary happiness in their lives, not this uh, incredibly crazy stuff. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. And let's talk again soon. All the best. All right.